Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. For those that don't know me, my name is Nathan, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here, the lead pastor, which means that uh, most Sundays I'm the one on the stage communicating. And uh, I would like to say that uh, normally I like to communicate in a fairly animated fashion. Uh, However, uh, today what I want to do is I want to do a little bit of teaching. Uh, So we're going to be a little heavier on the information side of things this morning, but I think it's going to be helpful. You see, there's there's kind of a couple of primary ways that, that preachers and people who teach in church, communicate. One of them is called topical sermons. Uh, this is the primary way that, that we communicate here at this church. So we, we're, we're talking about a particular topic on a given Sunday. Hey, today we're talking about faith, or we're talking about marriage, or we're talking about money, or we're talking about hope, or we're talking about whatever the subject is. And so we then open up the scriptures and say, what does God say about this particular subject? Now, one of the reasons why this is the primary way that I usually communicate is because that's the way Jesus taught. It's the way Paul taught, and it's, it's the way that the early church fathers taught. They, they said, here's what we believe God teaches about a thing. Um, but what we're going to be doing over the next 10 weeks is what we call exegesis. All right, It's an exegetical study, which means uh, that we're going to be walking through a portion of the New Testament, and we're going to be going by verse by verse, line by line. And one of the big advantages to doing this, and why we, we want to do this on occasion, is because it forces us to then take a closer, deeper dive into a particular portion of the Scriptures. And it causes us to, we've got to talk about the backstory and the history of the early church and Paul and the people he's writing to. And then as we're going through a letter, in this case we're going through a letter that Paul wrote, uh, we're going to have to kind of deep dive into some of the themes that he continually hits throughout the letter and look at it from various angles. So it can be very helpful in the deepening of our faith to study the Bible in this way. And so um, often in the wintertime, during the sort of months in January, February, March, we, we usually kind of take a step back and, and spend some time digging in to the Scriptures. And so I want to do that. So over the next 10 weeks or so, I want to encourage you in your own study to be opening up. Uh, we're going to be in First Thessalonians for the next 10 weeks or so. I want to be encouraging you to open it up at home, read it through. You can read it through in about two, uh, not two, maybe six or seven minutes from front to back. There's five chapters. So uh, I want to be encouraging you to do that, to familiarize yourself, because then if you're familiar with what's there, as we're talking about the various themes on our Sundays over the next 10 weeks, they're going to be a lot more helpful for you as we move forward. So as I said, we're going to be talking about uh, First Thessalonians. got a little slide with an image here, uh, graphic, and the theme for this series the Thessalonians one, if you could throw that up for me, um, it'll come. Anyways, uh, we're going to be talking about Thessalonians. There it is, waiting well. And one of the themes that we're going to find throughout this whole book is that the, the early Christians were waiting for Christ's return. And that's going to be a theme that's going to keep surfacing as we go through the book. So before we, we jump into the letter itself and start to kind of pull it apart, uh, what I want to do is just kind of give a brief summary of this book that I'm holding. And I do this because every single week we have guests with us. Uh, Every single week we have folks who are new to faith, exploring faith. And you come to church and you kind of know about the Bible and you know kind of about the God of the Bible. You've heard about Jesus, but you don't know kind of what's in here. And and I want you to know a couple things about this. Uh, First of all, this book is not like any other book ever written. In fact, most books that we think about, and we think about a book that was written, we think about uh, books that are written by a single author, or a few authors, and they sit down, and over a year or a few years, they pen an entire volume, and it's a book. 
This book is not like that. In fact, the Bible is actually broken out into 66 separate books. Now we can put up that cool graphic with all the Bible verses. So you can see all of these books are all collected into one volume that we call the Bible. And so we have it divided into Old and New Testament. And there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So we have all of these various documents. Some of them are prophetic. Some of them are poetry and literature. Some of them are historical, telling stories and narratives. I mean, it's full of all kinds of amazing things. Now, these books, all of them that you're seeing, were written over a span of about 16 to 1,700 years. So not your typical book, right? And, and all of this has been collected and put into this book. Now, what's amazing about it is that throughout all of these books, from front to cover in the Bible, there is this silver thread weaving through it all. And it's the story of God and his people. It's the story of God's love for his people, his redemption of his people through his son, Jesus. And you can start at the beginning. In the beginning of Genesis, you start to see your first indicators that someone is coming who's going to save mankind. And all the way through to the book of Revelation at the back, it's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus redeeming God's people. And what's amazing is even though this book was written, all of these books were written over this massive time span by many people in many locations, it's like God's signature is all over it as he writes his story. And, and that's why this book is the, is the best-selling book of all time. It's why this book has transformed the lives of hundreds of millions of people throughout history because it is God's handiwork. And so uh, we're looking at the Bible. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. A couple things you need to know about this. The Old Testament books are often called the Jewish Scriptures because they really do uh, tell the story. The first two-thirds of the Bible tells the story of the nation of Israel. And God calls Abraham and his descendants, and they go in and inhabit a land called Canaan, which becomes Israel. And then they, you know, they set up kingdoms, and they lose their kingdoms, and they're exiled, and back and forth. So you can read about all the history, the kings, the prophets, the laws. All of that is in there in the first two-thirds of your Bible. Then there's the New Testament which are the Christian documents, okay? And the New Testament really outlines what happens after Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, comes to earth and begins his ministry. And so the New Testament begins with four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them tells about Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Then there's the book of Acts, that little orange slice, which tells the history of the early church. So after Jesus resurrected and went up to heaven, his disciples went out preaching and telling people about Jesus. People believed. The church was formed. The rest of the New Testament, see all those books? Those are letters written by the apostles and other church leaders to Christians to encourage them, to train them, to correct them. That's what we have. And, and here's something cool. You may be wondering, how are all these books organized? In my mind, you think they would be organized chronologically, like the oldest to the newest, or maybe even alphabetically. That would make sense, right? Like, put them alphabetically. Here's how they're organized. All of Paul's letters are in one group. And then all the rest of the New Testament letters written by other authors are in another group. And guess how they're organized? From longest to shortest. Don't believe me? Flip through your Bible and look. If, like, all Paul's letters, Romans is the longest, and it goes all the way down to the very shortest letter he wrote. And then they grouped all the other uh, New Testament authors, longest letters, all the way to the shortest and so if you're new to the Bible, you're opening it, and you're like, how does all this fit together? It takes some time, uh, but this is why we talk about these things, so that we can kind of understand. I wanted to show you that because uh, as we begin this letter to the Thessalonians, um, this is one of the oldest documents we have in the New Testament. So it was written before many of the other letters, even though it finds itself way down in the list. 
It's actually very, very old and gives us a glimpse into what the early church was all about. So with that being said, um, Paul is the the author of this letter, or one of the authors, and um, some of you will know about Paul. He was, a, he was a religious leader who was actually trying to stop the early church. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and he has this incredible life-changing experience, and he's so radically transformed by meeting Jesus that he becomes perhaps the greatest proponent of the faith. He goes out and begins planting churches, telling people about Jesus all over the Roman Empire. And during his life, he goes on three missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. I've got an image here of the second missionary journey. Each one got consecutively longer. This is the second one. So he begins in Jerusalem on your bottom right, along the Mediterranean Sea. And he goes up through Syria to Antioch, Tarsus, all the way across through um, Macedonia. And then Greece is that section up at the top. You can see Italy, the little boot over there. He goes there on his third missionary journey. But you'll see Thessalonica up on the top. It's a major Greek port city. And Paul, if you read about it in Acts chapter 16 and 17, he's in Philippi. He's imprisoned, him and Silas. They get out of prison, and they go to Thessalonica in Greece, and they begin to tell people about Jesus. People begin to believe. A bunch of Jews don't like it. Um, some of the Jews believed. Others made it very difficult for Paul, and they run him out of town So then later, he travels to more cities and then would later write back to encourage the Christians that they had met and shared the gospel with. And that's what we're reading today, this letter that Paul had wrote. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into verse 1. Let's kind of go verse at a time, and uh, I'll add some comments along the way. You guys ready for this? You guys sound excited. See, I knew I could teach that I don't need to be super animated because it's so cold in here, you won't fall asleep. It's perfect, you know, almost like God had a plan. So, 1 Thessalonians, we begin in verse 1. It says this, Paul, Silvanus, by the way, he's better known as Silas, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. See, um, in the introduction, as Paul often does, he tells us who's writing. He says, it's me, Paul, I'm writing. And I'm writing with Silas, and I'm writing with Timothy, who was kind of an apprentice to Paul, was learning under him. And we together, who had been with you, are writing to you to encourage you. Now, many theologians believe that Paul is the primary author. So he's doing most of the writing, and his friends are kind of there, and they're all in one spirit and all that. But the reason why they believe Paul is the primary author is because as you read through all of Paul's letters, there's a consistency in the language and the uh, syntax and all of that stuff, right? So if I wrote you a 10-page letter... And Todd, who's our Connections pastor, wrote you a 10-page letter, they would be very different. We would approach it differently. We would use different, my, I would have run-on sentences, his would be perfectly grammatically correct, you know? And so you'd be like, okay, this is definitely from Nathan. Even though I said, hey, it's Nathan and Todd, you'd say, okay, Todd was with them and they're in agreement, but it's Nathan. And so Paul is credited with the, the bulk of the content here. And they're writing to the Thessalonians. They're not writing to a church like a building. They're writing to all the believers in that city. You know, and I was meeting this week with some of, the, some of the pastors of the other churches in the city, and we were just saying, like, this is, God's church isn't my church, or your, it's this, the church of Peterborough, right? There is this sense where God's people are in all these different expressions and different places, but it's one church, and so he writes to the, the believers in Thessalonica. Verse 2, he says this, we give thanks to God always for all of you. This is a very encouraging letter. Paul writes some strong letters. This is a very encouraging letter. And so I hope this series will be encouraging. He says, we thank God 
We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've highlighted those three words because they're significant themes in this letter in the weeks ahead, but they're also significant themes throughout all of the Bible. Uh, Faith, love, and hope. These three things will remain when everything else fails. And so Paul is literally saying... um, We pray for you, and we're so thankful because we see that you're growing and developing in your faith in these areas. Now, as an outline for this message series, we have about 10 weeks. The first five, I'm going to tell you right now, is all about growing and developing your faith. We're going to hit that from a bunch of different angles because that's what Paul's doing. He's talking about, hey, I see what God's doing in you, and I want you to continue to grow and to develop in your faith. Verse 4, here's what he says next. For we know. That's a strong language. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, initially, as I was preparing this message, I I was considering um, going over five points of Calvinism and talking about all these different theological ideas. But in the end, I think what Paul, the really amazing thing about this particular statement is that what, what he's saying is, you guys are loved and chosen by God. Now you go, well, of course. Why wouldn't God love me? I'm amazing, right? Of course I'm loved. Of course I'm chosen. But here's the amazing thing. For generations, and I'm holding up my Bible because I want you to see the first two-thirds of my Bible is what? The Old Testament. And what's the Old Testament about? The Jewish nation. Why are the Jewish nation important? Because they were hand-chosen by God to be God's people. Literally, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. He's like, you, I want you. And then Abraham has two sons, different moms. And God says, I want that one, Isaac. And then Isaac has two twin boys, and there's an older and a younger. And God's like, I'll take the younger, Jacob. God's choosing, choosing, choosing. And Jacob has 12 sons, and he's like, hmm, Judah. And then on and on. If you open up Matthew, the first chapter is dedicated to Jesus' lineage. And it literally shows God's like, you, 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 throw in a prostitute, throw in some people that shouldn't be there, just because God's like, that's because I can do that, because I'm amazing, and I'm gracious, and you, 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 all the way to Jesus, who is the chosen one. And Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the one who saves us from our sins. He's the one that makes us right with God, children of God. It's through Christ. And so Jesus is the chosen one. And now this new message is, hey, everything that the Old Testament taught was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is the real chosen one. And all who have faith and trust in him are saved and become God's sons and daughters and children. So the chosen ones are not just biological Jews. They could be. But it's actually those who trust and believe in God's son, the Messiah. Now see, this is the message that almost got... Paul killed everywhere he went because the Jews didn't like it. They're like, we're special because we're Jews. And he's like, no, you're really special and loved by God because you love his son. And they're like, but we don't. And that's the problem, right? So this, is, so this is the idea. And so what's so amazing about this statement is not, here's what I want you to see. He says, he's writing to a Greek city, to Greek men, Greek women, Greek children who are not God's chosen people physically. And he's like, we know that you're loved by God and chosen. You see how radical that statement is? And it's because of what Christ has done. Now, here's here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today. Paul's saying, we know you're children of God and chosen because you have a genuine faith. But here's the question I want to ask. How do you know if faith is genuine? It's a great question, isn't it? How do you know 
if, if this faith that you have in God, in Jesus, is actually genuine faith. It's the real deal. Some of you have seen expensive artwork, you know, the art of the masters, worth a million dollars, this painting, because somebody painted it 500 years ago. And someone takes it and makes a copy of it. They paint it. It looks just like the same thing, but it's not the same thing, right? One of them's worth a million dollars, and one of them's worth next to nothing. Because it's a copy. It's not the genuine article. But a great art connoisseur will be able to look at it and go, that's not the genuine article. When I was a kid, um, I I love sports cars, still do. And I remember in my little town, I saw this red Ferrari drive by. It was a 308. And I saw it go by, and I'm like, wow, Ferrari. And someone who was older and wiser and knew more about cars said, that's not a Ferrari, that's a Fiero. A Pontiac Fiero, okay, it was a little two-seater Pontiac, very cheap, not very fast, not very good. And you could rip all the body panels off and buy a body panel kit, and you slap it all on, and it looks just like a Ferrari. Except when you get inside, it says Pontiac on the steering wheel. <laughs> okay, so it's not a Ferrari, it's a Pontiac. So how do you know if your faith is genuine? How do you know if the real thing is going on inside or if it's just a show? And this is important to know, right? Like, if you have kids, like my wife and I do, you want your kids to have a faith that's real and authentic. So how do you know if it's really happening for them or if they're just putting on a show, being good kids? If you're dating someone and you want to get married, and you're wondering, hey, is this person that I'm interested in marrying, um, is their faith authentic or are they just putting on a show, trying to look like a Christian so I'll marry them? Like, you... These are, I'm going to tell you how, okay? You ready for this? It's good, right? But there's a couple warnings I want to give you before I share with you these four signs to indicate whether faith is truly genuine. There's a couple things I need to do. Number one is a warning. That the purpose of me sharing this information with you is not an excuse uh, for you to run around judging everyone. Right? You can see how that would easily happen, right? Someone's here, maybe your spouse is at home watching TV, And you come home from church, and you're like, hey, pastor gave me four signs whether faith is genuine. I don't see any of them in you. You're going to hell. I know it. You know, you could could use that against people. Someone at work could say, oh, I'm a Christian. You're like, oh, no, you're not. Pastor Nathan said these four signs. Let me show you in Thessalonians. No, we don't do that. That's not the point of this. Uh, As always, what we want to do is take this, what we're hearing, and apply it first to what? Our own hearts. Are these signs of a genuine faith alive and well in me? Am I seeing these or am I growing and developing these in myself? Um, The second thing I want to to let you know, because again, whenever we hear this information, our first instinct is always to start judging and looking at everyone else. The second thing I want you to understand is that faith grows. Whenever Jesus talked about faith, he always talked about it as a seed. Some of you read of his parables and he said, a seed is planted in the ground. And then it becomes a great tree and produces all this fruit. But guess what? There's a long process involved, isn't there? And sometimes I could take an apple seed and I could plant it in my backyard. And I come back out the next day and I'm looking for an apple tree and it's not there. And I could go, well, it didn't work. But in reality, it's under the ground germinating. It's there. And maybe a few weeks later I come back and there's a little sprout coming out of the ground and I'm dancing around the yard. My apple tree is growing and my neighbors think I'm nuts. Because it's just something small. It's insignificant. But I see it growing, and I go, ooh, that's really good. And what do you do when you see something like that growing? Anybody? You nurture it. You water it. You put a light on it. You do whatever you can do to help that thing to grow. And that little seed becomes a little tree, and you put a stick in the ground. You maybe put some strings so it doesn't blow over in the wind. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it starts to produce all this fruit. 
But it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes, this is the warning, sometimes we judge others too quickly because we can't see what's going on in their heart. And you go, well, their life hasn't changed. Well, they don't look like a Christian. They don't sound like a Christian. We're judging too soon. You can have two people, one of them that looks like the model person, another person whose life's a mess, and you say, which one is the authentic Christian? And I would say, let's, let's look again in 10 years. Let's look again in 20 years. You might be surprised what you find. So we don't want to judge too quickly, but here's the other key. We want to encourage the growth of faith when we see it in people. What Paul is doing in this letter, he's literally saying this. He's saying, hey, I see God at work in you. That's the title of my message, by the way. I see God at work in you. Paul's like, let me tell you the ways that I see that faith that was planted in you, how I see it growing into something amazing. Let me tell you what I see. I'm going to celebrate because that little shoot came out of the ground. And sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but it is easier for me to be critical than it is to encourage. It's probably just me. It's probably my personality. You know, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. I like to get everything better. I like to do it bigger and better and faster. And, I, you know, always pushing forward. And it's like, hey, let's improve that. Let's, I can criticize anything. Believe me. Ask my family. I can criticize anything. But Paul's encouraging the little he sees. And I don't know about you, but... I'm also a critique, the best criticizer of myself. Like, I know every area that I need to work on. I know every area I fall short. And so I, a lot of times, don't need someone to come and tell me what I'm doing wrong or where I'm missing it. I'm sure you guys are aware as well in your own life, but I do need encouragement once in a while, and so do you. And I just wonder what would happen is, that, because again, before I show you these signs of genuine faith, what would happen is if our, if our posture as a church rather than criticizing where everyone falls short, that we would encourage where we see God at work in people. Imagine the difference that would make. Hey, I saw you exercise patience. I see God at work in you. Hey, I saw you choose that instead of that. I see God at work in you. Hey, I'm watching your relationship blossom. I'm seeing how your faith is developing and maturing. I see God at work. I see. Why don't you just try it? Turn to someone near you and say, I see God at work in you. That did not sound very convincing at all. I mean, come on, guys. The energy level was so low. Like, tell them like you actually are convinced. And this may be a faith statement. Come on, let's try it again. I see God at work in you. Okay. So again, this is a posture thing, right? We're going we're gonna to give these four signs, four signs of genuine faith. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it real? Is it fake? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you see the real thing, even if it's only in its tiniest seed form, encourage, pray. Bless. I see God at work in you. Keep going. Keep growing. Keep developing instead of picking apart everything they're missing. Okay, does that make sense? So we've got the heart of this. Now I want to share with you the four things, the four signs. Um, And I'm drawing these out of the text. Paul is like, hey, we know you're called of God. We know your faith is real. Here's how. And he's going to give four different things. Here's the first one. God is doing something in you. Here's how he says it. We know God has chosen you, verse 5, because... Our gospel came to you not only in word. The gospel is not just something you understand in your head. It's not just a theory you embrace. He says, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. All right, what Paul's saying is you heard about Jesus, but it didn't stop there. Something happened inside of you. God did something inside of you that's begun to change you from the inside out. And this is true of every believer for thousands of years since Christ ascended into heaven People have been being changed by the word of God, by the spirit of God. Something happens inside. You may not see angels. 
You may not feel a warm, fuzzy feeling go through your body. You may not have some strange spiritual experience, but something changes inside of you and you go, that wasn't me, that was God. Do you understand? It's like God puts that miraculous seed of his spirit inside of you and you go, whoa, something's happened and it wasn't me. That's the story of every believer who has authentic faith. God has done something. In my own story, it, it sounds like this. My mother uh, was uh, raised in a Catholic family but didn't practice. So I'm not saying this is true of every Catholic, but for my mom, she was Catholic by name but not by practice. She wasn't reading the Bible, any of that. And about a year after I was born, she went to a tent meeting and heard a preacher talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. She embraced that and everything changed. And she came home and she's reading her Bible for the first time in her life. And my dad, her husband, was like, who is this woman? And every time he talked to her, she wanted to, she'd circle back to Jesus. And he's like, where's this coming from? And he, he recognized even though she was the same person, something had changed. There was a transformation that had begun in her by the power of God. This is true. I saw this in my brother's life. I was 12. My brother was 16. He rebelled, chose to go in his own way, didn't want anything to do with the way he was raised in church. And went his own way. And about six years later, he comes home and tells me I need to follow Jesus. I'm like, who are you? I'm the good kid. You're the prodigal son. You have no right to tell me that. But I could see in him, even though he was the same guy, same tendencies, same everything, something had changed inside. And if, if, I, if he was here today, he would say God did it. Like that, that's, the, that's the uniting factor. Every Christian from every generation would be like, I don't know how, I don't know when God did it. God did something in me. Something he did. It was, it's external, right? There's something's happened inside of me. And for some people, it's 10 years of seeking and asking questions and trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden, lights come on. And you sing Amazing Grace and tears roll down your eyes because you know God has done something by his grace in you. For others, you heard a message once, boom. I can't explain why it's different for everybody. But every Christian of every generation is like, God has done something in me. It's his power at work in us, not anything we do. Does that make sense? Sign number one. So that's what we're looking for in us and in others. Sign number two, you begin to behave differently. So if something changes on the inside, guess what happens? Stuff starts to change on the outside. And as I always say, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like somebody becomes a Christian and all of a sudden all their bad habits are gone. They used to be a jerk. Now they're the sweetest person ever. You know, they used to be terrible with their time, always late. Now they're on time and punctual because Jesus saved them. I've never seen that happen. It'd be really cool if it did, you know. Uh, but that, that's not usually the way it works. But a process begins. And with something changing on the inside, the external stuff begins to change as well. Here's how he, he says it in his text. He says, you know... What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake? You, you saw how we lived among you, the example we set. And he says, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Your behavior started to change. You started to model your life after us, and you started to change the way you behave to line up with what the Lord would have for you. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, even though it was hard at times, you still were changing on the outside because something had changed on the inside and you wanted to follow Jesus. Even if it was going to be hard, you wanted to live the right way. So this is powerful. And I would just simply say this. It's impossible to have genuine faith in Jesus and not have your behavior affected in some way. 
Again, you won't clean up your life. You won't be perfect overnight. But it's impossible to have a genuine faith and not see at least a slow transformation of your external behavior. And it says they became imitators. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to imitate my big brother. He would say something. I would say it back, same tone, same words, right? And he would say, Nathan, don't do that. And I would say, Nathan, don't do that. You've all played this game. If you have a sibling, you've played this game. He'd be like, if you say that again, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, if you say that again, I'm going to kill you. And then he'd pull out a kung fu move and I'd scream for mom and run, right? And that's what I did. And then he would get punished. It was the best thing ever. It was amazing, right? But when you imitate somebody, it's not forced upon you. It's something you desire to do, right? You see somebody and you go, I want to be like that. And you move in that direction. That's, see, I grew up in church, like some of you in this room, and we attended lots of different churches, and every church seemed to have their own rules. Like there's the Bible rules, and then there's all the ones we tack on. Can't go there, can't do that, can't dance, can't, you know, whatever. Go to the, that movie, go to the theater, play cards. There are all kinds of rules. Not in the Bible, but they said, here's what you have to do. You can do this, you can't do that. And all these rules got added. But, but it wasn't like these are suggestions that will lead you to Jesus. It was like these are the ways that you live as a Christian. It was kind of mandated but it seems like what Paul is, is pointing to is that they saw godly living and moved towards it willingly. That's a sign of authentic faith. Not specifically rule keeping, although rules are fine and all that stuff can be good. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a heart desire to move towards a holy life, to live like Jesus. Why? Because he's doing something inside of you. So those two things, he's doing something inside, the outside the behavior begins to change, you're moving in his direction, a life of holiness. He continues, verse 7. He says, so much so, your lives began to change so much externally that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your life was changing so much that the rumors were spreading and people were hearing about it everywhere. He says in verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, these are the surrounding regions, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. (laughs) Paul's like, Your lives have been so transformed. The people are hearing about it. We don't even have to preach to them because your life is preaching for us. It's amazing. You know this. Actions often speak louder than words. They really do. That's why every time we have a dedication, you know, parents bring up their little babies and they want to commit to the church. Like, hey, we're dedicating our child to God. This is a very beautiful thing that we do on a regular basis. And every time I try to remind the parents, the best thing you can do for your kids is love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because your kids, guess what they're going to do? Imitate. They're going to look at mom, they're going to look at dad, and if your faith is real and genuine, they're going to be attracted to that thing like a moth to a, to a fire, to a flame. They see it and they go, I want that. And they're going to model their lives after their parents. So it's not enough to just like put them in Christian programs, teach them morals while you go and do your own thing. You pursue Jesus and make him the Lord of your life, and they will follow suit. Nine times out of ten. It's the best thing you can do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Actions speak louder than words. Here's sign number three. Um, We're moving through these at a good clip. You are continually making God the center of your life. Here's how he says it. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, Remember, Paul's writing to Greeks, and the Greeks had their own religious systems. They had all their Greek gods, 
And those gods each represented something, and they worshipped those gods and made them a priority, and those gods would give them blessings, and this is how this whole thing worked. And you might be thinking, well, we live in Canada. Nobody has idols in their house. I don't, I don't worship any idols. But here's another way to think about it. An idol, which is supposed to be a god, is whatever is at the top of your priority list. Let me put it that way. Whatever you value and love most is your god, your idol. Let's use that language. And so if you want to know what your idol is, you just have to go, okay, what's at the top of my priority list? Now, I could draw, if I had a whiteboard, I'd draw you a pyramid of priorities. And there's one slot at the very top that's most important to you, and then everything else falls in line underneath it. And here's the question, what's in your top box? What's, what's at the top of your pyramid of priorities? Because that will begin to reveal to you what you love and value most. And it could be anything. I don't know what your God is. I don't know what your highest priority. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's um, your career. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your spouse. Probably not. More likely your kids. Kids often get placed there. It's like, oh, my kids, they're the center of my universe. And they leave and you're like, I don't have a center. I'm flying into space because your life is over. It's like, oh, my God just left and went off to college. Some of you have experienced this. I can see it in your eyes. But here's the thing. Your spouse, your money, your kids, none of those things are able to bear the weight of God. And Jesus has the audacity to say, put me first. Seek my kingdom first, and all these things will be taken care of. Because when we put him in his rightful place, our marriages thrive, our kids thrive, our relationships thrive, our business thrives, because we've got things in the right sequence. And what he's saying here is these people abandoned their old ways of thinking, abandoned their old value structures, and pursued Christ as number one. And that began to change everything. And so Jesus encourages us, and Paul encourages us to do the same. Here's sign number four. You're waiting with expectation for the return of Jesus. Now, this is something we don't talk about a lot, but we're going to, because we're in Thessalonians. And in every single one of the five chapters, Paul is going to mention the return of Jesus. And we're going to have two complete sermons talking about the rapture, the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord at the end of the series. So I hope you don't miss it, because you're going to learn all kinds of incredible things about it. And what's common across all these letters written to the New Testament churches, these people were waiting with anticipation for Jesus to come back. He had just left, like, 20 years ago. And they're looking at the sky going, when's he coming back? When's he going to make this world right? Free us from Roman oppression, death, sickness. When will he make it all new? And now nearly 2,000 years ago, people aren't waiting anymore. Even though we're technically closer to his return now than ever. People aren't. And I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about it and we don't think about it a lot is this. We live so well in Canada. We have roof overhead. We usually have heat. <laughs> We, you know, we have, we have more food than we can eat. We're throwing food out sometimes, right? And we have cars to get around, and we've got coats, and we've got all the things that we need. We have medical care and all of these things. So, so we sometimes are sheltered from some of the things that we can experience in this life. There are places in the world, I'll tell you, you can travel the world, and there are places where people are like Christians. They're in such a bad spot that they're like, come, Lord, come. And we're like, it can wait. I've got a, I've got a vacation plan next month, right? So, so we lose sight of this, that he is coming. And when he comes, it's better than anything we could experience right now. And this was a common thread. And he says this. It's a sign number four of a, of a, of a, of a genuine faith. 
We're longing for his return. And the more you know him and the more your faith grows, the more you will long to see him and to watch for his return. Um, sometimes I'll work from home. I'm working on a sermon. I'll be sitting on the couch and I'm typing away at around 3.30 or so. My little dog, Charlie, pops up out of nowhere. You know, he's been sleeping around the house all day. And all of a sudden at 3.30, he pops up, jumps on the windowsill and he sits looking out the window. Any movement, the tail starts to wag and the growling starts, and I'm like, oh. And then I, I realized the kid's bus is coming. And he's literally, every day, he just like, he, he, he can't read the clock, I'm sure of that. But somehow he knows, like, this is bus time. And so he's sitting on the window and his tail's gone, and he's growling at everything that moves because he knows something is coming. Paul's like, hey, your faith is real because you're waiting with expectation for Jesus to return. Because you understand that, that Jesus hasn't just begun something in you. He didn't just start something in your heart. He's coming back to finish it. And he'll finish it all. Like I got unfinished projects around my house. Jesus doesn't have any unfinished projects. Like he's coming to finish it, right? And, and so he didn't just begin. He's coming back to finish. And those of us, as we grow in our faith, our expectation for his return grows and grows and grows. So these are the four signs. Let me just read to them quickly. The four signs of, an, of a genic, uh, genuine faith is simply this. It's God that's doing the work inside of you. Number two, you begin behaving differently. Your behavior begins to change. Number three, you're continually making God the center of your life. Notice the word continually, because this isn't something you do once. Every week you have to reorder your priorities, because guess who falls out of first place? God does. And something else takes it, so it's like constant repentance, constant placing God and Jesus back in their rightful place. It's a continual process. And lastly, waiting with expectation for the return of Christ. So um, this is a good introduction. Again, as we go from this place this week, I sure hope that you heard the heart of this message. I didn't tell you this stuff to criticize. I told you this so that we could see God at work in these ways. And if you see it in your spouse, if you see it in your kids, if you see it in a friend, if you see it in someone in your small group, you say, what do we say? I see God at work in you. And when you point it out and go, hey, I saw that. God's at work. It's exciting. I want to encourage you. Can we do that? Wouldn't you like to be part of a church that does that? That sees God at work in others and says, hey, I see that and I raise it. So today, uh, let's close in prayer. And uh, next week, we're going to continue in our study. So Father, thank you for every person here today who has um, made their way through the snow uh, to get into this place so we could sing and worship you and hear from the scriptures. Lord, I pray that we as a church would have a heart that is to encourage and strengthen one another. And Lord, even though uh, sometimes we need a kick in the pants, sometimes we need correction, most of the time we need encouragement. And, and I pray that we would be people who have eyes to see how you're working in one another. That we, like Paul, would be able to say, I see that and I call it out. God is at work in you. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who is not sure whether they have a genuine faith, that today they could be sure that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that as they do so, Lord, you would begin that work that you are doing in all of us. So God, would you continue to grow and develop our faith, both individually and as a church family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.